I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past and present. Things are changing so quickly lately. I thought that I'd be using this intro to talk about the return to life and normality. I was going to admit that all my plans of re-entry at a calmer pace were squashed within a week. If I'd managed to record this even just last week as I'd planned, I would have a much different intro. But this week in Victoria, it looks like we're all going to have to do our bit, reel ourselves in reduce our contact and interaction until we're on top of the virus numbers again. Apparently toilet paper is again being hoarded and it looks like I won't be receiving the long-awaited visit from my sister, her husband and my rapidly growing nephew until all of Melbourne isn't considered a hotspot anymore. I found out they wouldn't be coming yesterday and I'm almost too devastated to talk about it. So it's been a little over a month since Camilla's episode, and I really can't thank you enough for all of your messages and feedback. The overwhelming response has been that you all feel like you're sitting in a room having a chat with friends, and that is exactly the vibe I'm after with this whole endeavor. I love hearing your thoughts about the podcasts, and especially all the things you relate to or that you're learning. So keep the feedback coming. I know many of you were especially moved by Camilla's story. And the theme of grief and loss continued in the week we released the podcast. Sadly, her father-in-law, Jeff, passed away that week. And I want to extend my deepest and most heartfelt sympathy to Lee, Camilla, and their whole family. The week after the last podcast came out was a really intense one, actually. I had a lot of beautiful friends going through some really life-changing, heartbreaking stuff, all in this one time period. They're not my stories to tell, so I won't go into detail, and I actually find it's really tricky to talk about without seeming insensitive or like I'm co-opting other people's grief. But I can only really speak to my experience, and all of this happening at once knocked me around a bit. I was raw with the empathy I felt for the pain of their experience, and I think also by the powerlessness I felt in that I couldn't do anything to fix it except be there and witness it. All the news culminated one night when Mick was out and somehow Harvey had eaten enough watermelon and drunk enough water at Kenzie's insistence to cause him to vomit everywhere. And as I cleaned it all up out of the chairs and the rug and Harv had a bath in the kitchen sink, I just thought, I'll take this every day of the week. If this is a bad night, I want it. Possibly it was all magnified by world events, but it was the absolute best week for me to be able to finally see my mum again. And when I saw her, I just hugged her and I sobbed big, ugly, snotty tears. For about two weeks, actually, I cried over everything. I cried about telling people about seeing mum again. I cried when Kenzie's teacher sent out a video message saying she was looking forward to seeing the kids at school again. I cried taking her to the gate 
but not being able to go into the school. I cried taking Harvey to the gate at kinder and not being able to go in with him either. I cried when Mick asked me why I'd bought so much smoked salmon. I just cried all the time. And then, as life does, it's resumed a kind of rhythm. I've been able to catch up with friends and my family. I can see that people are okay and I'm getting my cup filled by human interaction. I've had visits from family. Kenzie turned six. She's lost a tooth. And I reached an equilibrium that I don't think I'd felt for a really long time. You know how you don't realise there's a background noise sometimes? Till it's gone. And then all of a sudden there's this clarifying silence. It was kind of that feeling. And I think getting back to normal has really driven home that maybe I work best within a structure. And let me tell you, having to get to school on time every day is a great way to build in structure. For those who know me, you'll be very surprised to hear that we get to school on time every day. I know, it's shocking. They didn't even have to tell me school starts at 8.30 in the hopes that we might make it by 9. I actually deliver a whole dressed, fed, hairbrushed child to the gate in a timely manner, regularly. Still a bit of a novelty at the moment though, and I'm sure by the time Harvey starts, I'll be considerably less smug and punctual. So that's the personal news. I also want to say something about the movement we're seeing globally. And this might get a little bit uncomfortable, so hear me out. And if it is uncomfortable, I encourage you to examine the discomfort, sit with it and be honest about where that may be coming from for you. And if I'm way off and you have some knowledge or education that I need to be aware of, I'm open and I'm learning. You may have noticed the acknowledgement of country at the top of the podcast. It's something that I wanted to do from the first episodes. And do you know what? I chickened out and I didn't do it, which is disappointing It's literally the least I can do towards acknowledging the incredibly bloody and traumatic history that white Australians own as settlers on this land. Was I the perpetrator? No. Does that mean I get to ignore it? Also no. Some call it tokenism, but I always feel it means something when local community members and officials do it at the start of meetings and events that I've attended. But I've also seen the eye rolls and the muttering And even worse, I've seen the flat-out rage this seems to provoke in people. And the idea of the confrontation this could lead to scares me. Because I don't feel informed enough to take someone on toe-to-toe when it comes to our history. I'll actually admit the level of my ignorance is shameful. And also, when I see the eye rolls and the muttering, I am enraged. And when that side of me is triggered, I'm the least eloquent person alive. I stutter. I lose all ability to think or speak clearly, and I'm very sure that often I actually inflame a situation. I widen the divide, because I'm not convincing anyone when I'm in that state, but I do tend to get people defensive and start an argument, and we don't need more people standing on their separate camps, yelling their point at each other. We need conversation. We need education. We need empathy, nuance, understanding, and change. Already... I'm not known for letting things slide. Racism and misogyny, discrimination in general. In fact, I'm often baited by people who know that I'll take the whole thing, hook, line and sinker, and swim off with the reel. It's a bit of a sport. For a long time, I thought that I'd lost my sense of humour, 
that I wasn't able to laugh at the things the way I used to. And slowly I've begun to realize that I'd just been laughing through ignorance for such a long time. And maybe those jokes were never actually funny. Now this is how the conversation affects me. Someone who is white, middle class, and who has not been discriminated against for the accident of my birth affording me a pale complexion. I get so tired seeing the bullshit out there and I don't have to experience racism. Imagine how tired people of colour are right now. They must be deep in their bones, tired and angry. So when you hear an acknowledgement of country, how does it make you feel? Take a look around you. What is everyone else in the room doing? I ask this. Because if we can't stand up and acknowledge that there was a civilization in existence on this land well before white settlement without our asses puckering, how the hell are we going to address the systemic issues that still oppress, marginalize, and at the very least disadvantage those same peoples 230 years later? It's taken me a long time to write this intro. I'm not sure if I'm going to change minds here or if I'm already preaching to the converted, and I'm not even starting to get into the depths of these issues. But if these continue to only be my secret thoughts and beliefs, and I don't stand by them, then I'm missing an opportunity to live in integrity. I'm not normalizing a viewpoint that I think a great many of us already have, and I'm choosing a side with my silence, even if it's not the one I actually support. So I will continue choosing discomfort, and hard conversations over allowing certain behaviours to continue in my presence. I will be more actively anti-racist, and I'm actively learning, having conversations, and putting my money where my mouth is, supporting grassroots Indigenous organisations. The Black Lives Matter movement is an important one. People are dying. And again, it's something I'm woefully ignorant about, but I'm determined to be an ally. Okay, how are we feeling after that one? Let me change tone slightly and set the scene for our next conversation with the incredibly passionate and fabulous Deb. Deb is one of those wonderful people who you feel so at home with from the moment you meet her. She's warm and engaging, and even though we only catch up now and then, it's always so great to be in her company. We recorded this in February this year on the day when we got the first real rain for the summer. It was pelting down. And because of that, the traffic was shocking. And despite getting my daughter to school on time, I was late. It took me nearly two hours to get from the Yarra Valley into Melbourne. I was flustered and not nearly caffeinated enough. We did the interview in Deb's offices. And I don't know if it was my state of fluster, if it was the fact that I was sitting on the couch in a psychologist's office, or that I'm very interested in psychology, or very personally connected to what Deb's particular passion in practice is. But I ended up centering most of the conversation around Deb's professional capacity. And I think I might have missed a bit of an opportunity to really get into her story. But also, wow, this was such an interesting chat to me. I'll speak more to it at the end, but I really hope you enjoy hearing about Deb growing up, her career, her passions, feminism, body image and choosing friends when you're new in town.
Deb, thank you for coming on The Extraordinary Ordinary. I really appreciate you taking out some time for me today. Thank um, you for asking me. That's all right. Yeah, well, you were one of the first people on my list um, when I told Steph that I would like to do a podcast and actually said the words out loud. Yeah. Um, we wrote a list of people we'd have on and you were up there. So um, it's yeah. an honour. Thank you. <laughs> it's only been about three months' worth of coordination, <laughs> but we have made it happen. Busy um, lives. Absolutely. So um, my first question is, have you had an extraordinary or an ordinary week? Uh, it's been a little ordinary this week, I think. Yeah. Um, as in challenging, I suppose. Okay. Um which, whereas I guess I think of extraordinary as positive. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Rather than it just being out of the ordinary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, an, or like, not a very great week. Then. It's been challenging. Mm-hmm. It's been a challenging week. Um, don't know that the weather helps terribly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm probably a little too busy and I'm not somebody yeah. who likes to glorify busy. I'd much yep. rather be someone who makes space for rest and, and yeah. relaxation. That's a good practice what you preach type. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, which I'm not doing a great job of right okay. now. Okay. How about you recognise it? Yes, so. absolutely. Excellent. So is that going to get better, do you think? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? There is. I've, um, as of the start of April, mm-hmm. I'm blocked out every second Friday for an admin day. Ah, uh, excellent. Which I will hopefully do either from home or here and activewear. Yeah. Which will okay. be nice. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. How do we know each other? Through your delightful sister. Steph and yes. and our shared love of Missy Higgins and Steph. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I love the story of you guys. How you two met? Yeah. Can you tell me? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I was at the tennis uh, with a friend of mine, Dean. Mm-hmm. Um, last minute invite, and he had amazing corporate seats, so we got mm-hmm. to play, uh, watch Serena Williams play. And one of his colleagues was with him, and we later went out. Together. Yep. And Dean's colleague, who I won't name, um, <laughs> decided that he quite fancied Steph. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I said, can, can we sort of angle the conversation over towards that group um, of right. women? And Steph was not interested in him at all. <laughs> but we, we got chatting. Yeah. And instantly I thought, I like you. I want to be your friend. I was new to Melbourne at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was really looking to sort of proactively yeah. expand my social circle. And so I sort of went, I pick you. Do you pick me too? Oh, so cute. <laughs> um, she was developing her yoga business at the time. So yeah. I, I thought I might be able to pass some referrals her way. So that yeah. got us started. Oh, wow. I, it's, um, I actually really love that story because it's, it's just amazing how when you move to a new city that you do have to actually actively choose to make friends. Yeah. They're not just going to fall into your circle. Absolutely. And, you know, you've got your childhood friends and that kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you have to start again. But you get yeah. to choose people. So Absolutely. rather than it being habit or circumstance, it's kind of a whole other process. Yeah, it's a conscious choice. And I came straight into a management role. Yeah, okay. So I sort of didn't have that same option of making friends through work. Yeah. That I think it makes a transition like that easier. Mm -hmm. So it was a very deliberate process. As as you said, you get to be selective. You're your adult self. And you kind of know sort of people that you want in your life by Mm -hmm. that point. Yeah. That's so cool. Uh, So how long ago did you come to Australia? Well... For, for this period of time, I think I've been here about seven years now. I'm not wow. very good with dates. Yeah, okay. Um, this this practice has been open for six years in May. Okay. So it must be about 
six and a half, seven years. Wow. So you came um, over to Australia and then yeah. just started up a, a business. <laughs> yeah. It, look, it wasn't the plan. Okay. I came into a, a job where I was an employee. Yeah. Um, but, but we weren't values aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then in deciding what to do next, I, I sort of looked around at some, some other roles that were being advertised and, yeah. and met some wonderful people. But in my typical spontaneous way, I thought, nah, I'll give it a go myself. How hard can it be? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it turns out reasonably challenging to start with, yeah. but, but I yeah. don't regret it. Okay. It's been an amazing journey. Wow. So I must yeah. have met you, it was just 30th. So that was, what, four years ago? Yeah. Um, and you kind of, uh, not knowing many people either. Yeah. But you came and stayed with us in the in the family holiday house yeah. while Steph was doing her 30th birthday celebration. Yeah. And you just slotted right in. It was Aww. like, oh, we've known this chick forever. <laughs> and I think you got to share a room with my grandma and my other yes. sister. And yeah, yeah nice intimate uh, <laughs> yeah. getting to know you type situation. <laughs> it was so lovely. It was yeah. so nice of you all to welcome me. Oh. The way you did. It was easy. With- <laughs> the way we operate, which is a little bit um, eclectic and fun, I think. Which is absolutely my cup of tea. Yeah. Yeah. So was that kind of typical of, like, were you having experiences like that that were just different to what would have happened at home? Or is that always kind of how you've... It's kind of always how I've been. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm really incredibly blessed yeah. um, with the friendships I have and with the number of families Mm-hmm. that I feel a part of okay. um, in addition to my biological family. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really blessed to have, you know, I have friends, 20-year-old daughters now who ring me for advice and oh, yeah, who I've and known auntie. since they were born. And, yeah, yeah. I do. I get, so I'm, I'm really, really lucky in that way. But yeah. I've, I've met amazing people with open hearts and open families. Oh, that's really lovely. Yeah. So um grew up in New Zealand? I did. With, um, dear listeners, you may have picked up an accent. <laughs> um, whereabouts? So I grew up primarily in a place called Rotorua, yep. uh, which is where all the thermal activity mm-hmm. is. Um, I was born in Gisborne um, and lived, actually lived in Adelaide for four years. Oh, I right. started school in Adelaide yeah, okay. um, and then moved back to Rotorua and right. spent most of my school years there. Mm-hmm. Your parents both? Kiwi? They are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And what were they over here for? So Dad's a psychiatrist. Oh, okay. So he was doing his psychiatry sort of training and residency yeah. um, in a hospital in Adelaide. Right. Okay. Yeah. Is that common that there's a bit of a, you know, <sighs> having to, yeah, like, you know, I, I know I uh, have friends from high school who did a lot of their, uh, like, medical degrees over in New Zealand and yeah. then they came back over here for, you know, post-grad type stuff. Yeah. Is that? I, don't, I actually don't know the answer to that. Okay. I think certainly probably back then the yeah. opportunities in New Zealand were fairly limited. Yeah, okay. Um, but And I've certainly heard of people doing, yeah, sort of a six-month mm. rotation, but I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure actually. I wonder if it's like a bit of a group agree- agreement. A group agreement. <laughs> a trans. Trans ditch agreement, yeah, it's, job opportunities. It's certainly a the psychiatry board is a Royal New Zealand and Australian 
Oh, okay. Like yeah. Country board, so there you go. It could be. And what would you say your childhood was like? Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> I should also say, Debbie's a psychologist. <laughs> so. I mean, in some ways, my childhood was very normal because that doesn't exist. Um, we all think yeah. our own childhood is normal and we get yeah. out in the world and see what everyone else's has yeah. been like. Um, my parents did a really good job, I think, mm-hmm. of not living, not making us grow up, being aware of the hard places they had come from. So okay. I, I grew up, you know, there were certainly challenges and, and hard times, but I grew up feeling like I sort of just fitted really nicely into the middle of society and I sort yeah. of had a very comfortable life yeah um I went to boarding school a couple of times which I didn't appreciate the first one so I'm not sure I made the most of it and the second one I didn't particularly like okay um and was that for the opportunities the boarding schools were going to provide or is that it it was because probably my family were going through some difficult things yeah um and I was becoming a teenager and that was (laughs) one extra difficulty that they didn't feel they could manage yeah yeah at that time fair enough yeah. And would you send a child of yours to boarding school, do you think? Would it's, you do it? It's re- that really interesting question yeah. because people's response is often, oh, you poor thing. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think of it that way. I think New Zealand's really different than yeah. Australia in that there's so many rural communities yeah. where, and, and that wasn't the case for me, but yeah. a lot of the people I went to school with, there really was no other choice that didn't involve an hour and a half on a bus each morning and afternoon yeah. anyway. So yeah. I think if I found myself in that sort of circumstance, I might. Yeah. I think somewhere like Melbourne when there's so many local opportunities, not a charm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny, um, boarding school is one of those things that my only experience of it is having read books. Yeah. And so it's always, you know, a large part of the story is that there these kids are in boarding school and so then there's yeah. minimal supervision and there's always that kind of parental disengagement and yeah. it's always a you know like a real trial by fire type thing as yeah. opposed to it actually being just somewhere where you <laughs> where you go and learn and <laughs> yeah have friends and yeah but, yeah certainly there was structure and, and it was the first school was actually an excellent school yeah I was just a bit too stubborn to really appreciate it yeah yeah. yeah well and it, it would be a big growing up type yeah. Thing, you know, even if it's a warm, nurturing environment and not yeah. at all like, you know, Hogwarts, it's still, yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and I'm learning curve. actually as an adult grateful for it. I, yeah. you know, my independence <clears throat> and my self reliance and yeah. the opportunity that I really had a chance to really develop my own personality. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm quite different. My, my family sort of is a bit different from them. Right. <laughs> um, and I think, I think having a chance to grow yeah. and challenge some, some insecurities and, and learn to be independent and confident yeah. okay. really had a positive influence. Wow. Do you think yeah. that was supported at the boarding school? Like, um, it must have been, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I don't specifically remember. Yeah, okay. Um, but I certainly developed it. A voice. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with a voice. No, exactly. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, and so you completed high school and yeah. uh, did you know what you wanted to be growing up? Did you already have an idea of that? I did. Yeah. I think I was about 12 or 13 oh, wow. when I first decided I wanted to be a psychologist. Okay. 
Yeah. Do you know what that was that appealed to you? Um, I think partly, obviously, with Dad being a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. I had some more awareness of that yep. sort of area as a career path. Mm-hmm. I think it, it very naturally, you know, at boarding school, people would knock on my door at 4 a.m. if they were homesick for support okay. and comfort. Yeah. Um, and then I think I had my own sort of struggles um, through adolescence and, yep. and didn't at the time feel that there was somewhere I could turn that I, that felt really safe to okay. talk about that stuff. So I did yeah. a bit of that. Be the person who you wish had someone had been for you. Or, yeah. Somebody says it more eloquently than yeah. that. But <laughs> I think you know, the be the change you want to see in the world. There's that one that too, one? but there's something mm-hmm. else about when you're deciding what you want to do with your life, be the person who you wish had been there for you. Oh, right. Some, something like that. That's a really nice. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Combination of those okay. three things. And so you finished high school and went straight into straight study into, for yeah, it. Yeah, straight into uni. I did four years and came and had sort of a gap year or two here in Melbourne. Okay. I fell in love with Melbourne then. Yeah, right. Uh, then went back and did my master's and then had a few years working <clears> and then did a three-year postgraduate okay. diploma in clinical psychology. So that's so it was eight years. Eight years of study. Yeah. 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 It's a long time. It is. It's uh, a huge commitment. Yeah, massive. And I'm, I'm pleased I had some breaks in between. Yeah, okay. And you got to reassess and evaluate whether that was really your jam. Absolutely. And, you know, I did some did some horrendously boring jobs, but it's some fun <laughs> and high-paying jobs as well. Okay. And, and really learned that money was, wasn't a key driver for me. Yeah. Um, which yep. helped me go and really reapply myself to that last three years, which was pretty full on. Okay. Do you have to do the last three years to be... Like a one-on-one psychologist, is yeah. that the... It's a little bit different in NZ than it is here. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some pathways that are less intensive here, although okay. they're looking at, I think, phasing those out. Right. Um, but in, in New Zealand, yes. Right. Okay. And so what does it look like if you choose not to do the postgrad? Good question. Yeah. Um, I mean, a psychology <coughs> degree, just certainly a psychology undergrad degree, yep. is pretty useless. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> Get might get you a sales role or yeah, okay. something like that, but it doesn't really get you any work in the field. Um, yeah. Some masters without the professional qualification, I'm actually not sure. Okay. Um, I know a few like people a lot of like change management and HR, talk, yeah, yeah, yep. that sort of stuff. I think. Okay. It's very different though to what you probably expect if you're like I'm going to be a psychologist. That's yeah. not where you imagine yourself being. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And do you feel like it's been what you thought it would be? Largely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think particularly I worked in the public system in New Zealand, so yeah. working with really complex yeah, um, and quite unwell individuals, which which was amazing mm-hmm. and such a good foundation for building your practice on. Mm-hmm. But psychology is just glacial and there's, there's only sort of limited impact you can have. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. working with people and their goals. Um, of course, and, yeah. and it might feel small to me, but it might be huge to them. Absolutely. Um, I think being here in Australia where private practice is so much more accessible, mm-hmm. you probably get to see psychology really work the way you hoped it would yeah, work. Yeah, okay. And you've got people making the choice Absolutely. to make those changes rather than people being at yes. a point where this is one of their yes. only options. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That really harrowing, did you... I mean, the system was set up so, you know, with here I'll see six or seven clients a day. There mm-hmm. I probably saw four. 
Mm-hmm. So there was sort okay. of, and, and you worked as part of a team, so you had social workers and OTs and psychiatrists <laughs> and nurses. So, okay. So, no, really harrowing. Occasionally, of course. But, yeah. Okay. But it is here too. Yeah. 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 Right. But I love it. I love the work. So I feel very lucky. Fabulous. Do you have like an area of passion within what it is you do? Yes, I yeah. do. So I work primarily with clients with eating disorders mm-hmm. or body image concerns okay. um, or, you know, a difficult relationship with food. Yep. Um, so, if you know, if I was ruler of the world, I would absolutely destroy the diet industry <laughs> and change the fitness industry and, yeah. and um, get rid of drug companies sort of marketing um, helpful messages into the medical. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that contributes. You know, I'd love to do myself out of a job. Yeah. As far as working with clients yeah. with eating disorders. Absolutely. Um, but I love those clients. Um, they're all amazing individuals. Um, a lot of psychologists don't like that because there's medical risks and complications mm-hmm. that you need to manage in a way you don't with a lot of other mental health Yeah, groups. okay. Um, so lucky to have found a niche. Yeah. Does that mean you have to work quite closely with medical practitioners? Yeah. Yeah. So have everyone on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so dietitians and GPs are absolutely essential. Yeah. Um, and then depending on severity, maybe other. How much retraining do you have to do of those medical professionals around um, yeah. <laughs> their attitude? And Good question. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Um, again, I'm, I'm really lucky. Um to have really amazing networks mm-hmm. and have some GPs who are excellent and informed yeah. and have, don't hold any sort of weight bias okay. um, themselves. Yeah. Yep. And so I know my, my clients are really safely cared for. Excellent. Um, but also there is a lot of re-educating. <laughs> we're, we're really lucky here in Melbourne that we've got some really fabulous activists yeah, who yeah. are out there doing a lot of the public re-educating. Yeah. That makes my life easier. Yes. Um, yep. But definitely there's been some GPs over the years yeah. to advocate on behalf of clients and mm. ask them to do things differently. Yeah. Okay. I'm only really starting to get a real handle on, like just for me, yeah. what how limited I've been in my choices in my life, in yeah. what I've put myself out for yeah. um, due to me thinking, well, I can't do that, I'm too big yeah. or, you know, I can't enjoy that or, you know, how many days I've wasted feeling uncomfortable yeah. versus just being in a moment. Yeah. It's, and, um, it? it's really bad. Yeah. And thinking back to high school and, you know, when all the, the dieting started yeah. and I made, like, what could I have done with my brain? If it hadn't have been thinking about what I needed to do to lose weight, like yeah. had I not been thinking about what food I was going to eat or shouldn't have eaten, yeah, or, um, yeah, I just it's incre- it's incredibly painful and confronting, isn't yeah, it? Um, yeah. And as you say, you know, gosh, we we show up as far more than a body, gotcha. But our body distracts us, yeah. And, Body dissatisfaction for women is normative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard a horrific stat. I can't remember what it was exactly, but certainly a higher proportion of women, higher proportion of women had missed several social events due to not being happy with their appearance. Yeah. Um, at times. Yeah. So like, That's heartbreaking. Absolutely. And it's yeah. like, you know, we all just need to wear shrouds and, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, and then we can just show up as our real selves and yeah. not have to work let our bodies and our outward appearance do the talking for us. Yeah. So does that mean your clientele are predominantly female or is that a 
predominantly. Yeah, okay. Um, Don't want to make assumptions about who's struggling with this. Yeah, and obviously, you know, sadly men are struggling more and more with body image Mm -hmm. and so so I definitely have male clients with with eating disorders or with a – unhelpful or for themselves mm-hmm. but it's predominantly young women yeah um, more and more though women throughout the age range as well saying right i've just kind of realized that this isn't normal that this yeah. isn't okay that yeah. this isn't a helpful or helping mm. um it's interesting because uh a, a lot of where i'm getting my education now is through people on instagram you know yeah. who are activists or um, dietitians who are activists yeah. um, who are working in this space and yeah. it's really challenging my thoughts around things. Yeah. But it's, it's also you know, Instagram where you get all those other messages and stuff as well yeah. and you have to be really careful to curate what it is that you're getting you do. fed. Yeah. Do you think that this the rise of social media, and this is a really broad <laughs> question, yeah. um, but do you reckon – that social media is actually working for or against people or do you think, again, it kind of depends where you come from? Um, look, I think I think largely against. Mm. I think people are becoming a little more savvy and a little more informed. Yeah. And, but, but I think comparisons are such an easy thing for mm. us to do and a platform like Instagram provides a really biased yeah. group of people to compare ourselves to. Absolutely. And we don't get a read. No. Um, no. So, you know, I do basically do Instagram audits with my clients. Yeah. So, okay. Right, no, get rid of them, 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 yeah. and this person, this person, this person, you know, when they want to and as they're ready, of course. Yeah. Um, but I think we – our brains believe visual information. Mm-hmm. We can, we're quite good at questioning. If we hear somebody say something, we can we can sort of say, oh, that doesn't sound right. And I think we're more discerning about what we okay. read as yep. well. But if we see an image, even if we can say that's probably Photoshopped, there's still, still a level of belief in the image. Right. Um, so I think yeah, that's okay. how visual platforms so you are like more credence just yeah. as a matter of kind of habit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Think, and I have not seen any science that supports this, but if you think about from an evolutionary perspective, yeah, people have probably been able to lie and be dishonest for centuries, mm-hmm. whereas it's only reasonably recently we've been able to distort visual images. So it's yeah. like our brain probably hasn't caught up. Oh, that's really... <laughs> That's really profound. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's writing a paper on it. Yeah, I oh, bet. But yeah. that's so true, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit like us adapting to new food types and yeah. um, and new sedentary behaviours and that kind of thing. But I guess yeah. it's, it's all part of the wiring, isn't it? I think so. Hmm. Certainly, intuitively, that feels right. Yeah, yeah. Even just having that constant um, influx of information is not something that I think we're very well equipped for. Absolutely. I know my brain, I really have to work on now being able to follow a thought through or, um, you know, even just stick to a task for a long time. It's a really um, invasive thing. I I did see some research that shows that our brains are already changing, that our attention span is reducing yeah but our ability to have multiple things that we're attending to has increased 
Oh, really? Right, right. Like we sit oh. there and we watch a movie and we're on our phones. Yeah. And we're flicking between different devices and yeah. So it makes sense. It does. I really hate that. Though. Yes. I hate same. sitting watching a movie. I'm like, I didn't see any of that. <laughs> yeah. But I can tell you, who's just you know who's posted what. Yeah. Who's on holidays right yeah. now? Jerks. Um. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so this area of passion, where did that come from? So. I hope my mum never listens to this, but if she does, sorry, mum. We've had this conversation. Um, I think my mum lived on the edge of an eating disorder or has lived on the edge of an eating disorder her whole life. I okay. believe she was probably quite unwell when she was younger. But, yeah. But certainly I grew up believing there was a particular number that it was bad to be above. Yes. Okay. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm well above that now. I'm very comfortable. But yes. But through my adolescent and early adult year, it was a number that I still had an emotional attachment to, even though my logical brain yeah. knew that that wasn't really rational. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky. I never really, though, got tempted to do a whole lot in pursuit of that. I yeah. think perhaps because I witnessed what I didn't ever want to be. Absolutely. Um, and then a very dear friend of mine was really unwell with anorexia. Um, okay. During our undergrad degree, yeah, um, we almost we almost lost her. Mm. Um, it was sort of a she almost died moment that turned things around for her. Right. Okay. Um, so I think having those sort of couple of personal influences, like yeah. wanting to understand that, wanting to help people that are still struggling with that. Yeah, I think is where it started. And then I was lucky enough that within a year of my career, I mm. initially started in adult mental health. Okay, but a, a role came up in our specialist eating disorder unit. Right. So yep. I got to I got to work there two days a week and have loved work. Is it an area where there is a lot of research? Is it something that's, I guess, you know, you've been doing it now for how long? Like 10, 12 years, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So is there a lot there yet or is it something that, that there's a lot of learning still happening around it as you go? There is loads of research. Yeah, I think it's it is well recognised as a really serious problem. Mm. So there's loads of research and, and good quality research mm-hmm. and an evolving evidence base of treatment. In saying that, I'm not sure we've nailed it yet. Yeah, okay. Um, it still takes us much longer to treat than a bunch of other mental health difficulties. Yeah, okay. Um, it still has the highest death rate mm-hmm. of any mental illness. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's. It's, yeah, we've got a way to go, and there's a sort of there's. I think the research so far is really on the individual yeah. work, which yep. is super important. But we also need to smash the patriarchy, and <laughs> you know, and crazy change. system. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's so pervasive, isn't it's it? So pervasive, and it's so normalised. Absolutely, that, you know, it's like. Uh, I just read Claire Bowditch's book. You yes. read that? Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. But she's like, when I was at my sickest was yeah. when I was getting Most all of compliments. the compliments and people yeah. were praising what I was going through. Yeah. And how normalising is that? How cementing is it that this is a state that you should be in? Absolutely. For other people's approval. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it makes me incredibly angry. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the feminist in me certainly keeps the passion going. I don't don't know that I was aware of my feminist leanings when I yeah. first started to pursue yeah. um, or when I first developed an interest in this area, but it <laughs> certainly keeps the passion 
there. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of my um, questions here, and I haven't ever got around to actually asking it, was, yeah. is, are you a feminist? Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Do you have an idea of when that hit as a understanding for you? Yes. I mean, in some ways I think I probably always was, but yeah. I certainly didn't have a name for it. Mm-hmm. I think of all, and I've always been a fighter for equity. I can yeah. remember at the second boarding school I was at hearing that some of the bullying that was happening to the junior boys by the older boys and marching into the deputy <laughs> principal and sort of saying, you've got to be aware that this is happening and it has okay. to stop. And, yeah. and so I think I've always been an advocate for people who – aren't being heard or aren't being valued okay. or are being mistreated and, and sadly the more you get exposed to society yeah the more really out the face that is mm-hmm. amongst females yeah how normalized inappropriate sexual advances are absolutely and, and so I think it's just been a constant evolving I, I find it hard to believe that anyone could be a psychologist and not be a feminist okay because we're so exposed to the inequity and yeah. all of the barriers. And the damage that, that the actually, damage. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. So it's, it's sort of a constant evolution and, and so many of the clients I work with and, and I feel it even within myself a little bit, there's yeah. this pull between this intellectual feminist voice yeah. and the socialised woman. Yeah. Yep. And that sometimes they pull us in opposite directions and that's really hard and really be a cause of shame yeah yeah absolutely I've identified as a feminist for quite a while and that came about from I read a book you know Caitlin Moran from the UK she's a bit of like a personality comedian yeah um and she read a book called how to be a woman and you know she's like you know how do I identify if you're a feminist it's like do you have a vagina yes do you want equal equality between men and women and it was like oh Uh, yeah and then the rest of the book you know kind of gives more information around that but um then now I listen to so many podcasts and one of my favorites the the guilty feminist learning so much and becoming so much more aware meanwhile yeah (laughs) I'm a stay-at-home mum with (laughs) two kids and it's like I've got to listen I'm going to stop listening to like feminist podcasts while I'm doing the dishes because (laughs) here I am we like smash the patriarchy yeah but then in the same you know same breath it's like okay but this is how it works for our family because yeah. this is how it works within our society like yeah. you know it's confronting hey it is and so I'm, so many times I'm like what am I going to do all of this rage <laughs> yeah. but at the same time it's like yeah okay but I've got to go get the kids from school and you know I've, I've got dinner prepped and yeah. you know Absolutely. it's just it's such a like a strange kind of tension between the two it is. Yeah. And I, I talk to people about it every day. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you're certainly not alone in that <laughs> in that dichotomy within you. Yeah. Okay, um, cool. And, and we should all have the right to do what works for us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, it's just balancing that. Absolutely. Sure. And then, but then I question how much of it's right because that's how it's been set up and you know yeah. that's that's the assumption you know my husband works very hard yeah um and he's also got a um capacity to earn so much more than yeah. me so like yeah it does make sense but then you know listening to things around uh parental leave rights and that kind of thing he was yeah. never given that opportunity yeah and so you know how fair is it actually yeah yeah um, what where was the, the equity? Where was the chance yeah. for you to say, stay home at six, six 
six months and look after our kids. Absolutely. And I'm going to go and do this qualification that grows my earning capacity or... Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Do you uh, secretly work on your clients so that they understand what feminism is? <laughs> it's one of it's, Yes. <laughs> um, it's one of those ethical issues. Yeah. Where, I have to check myself yep. and make sure that I'm meeting their needs yep. and Getting not pushing my values <laughs> onto them. But, but it is empowering, though, it, isn't it? I think so, yeah. and particularly you know, my clients with eating disorders, which is a large proportion of them, mm-hmm. and you can't have that it developed within. Yeah. Um, and so it's almost impossible, I think, to have that conversation without discussing feminism. And, and, and you know, it's very rare that I've had a client term or I wouldn't call myself that yeah okay. um, it, it is much more that dichotomy of, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely I'm not an object and how dare anyone objectify me but I objectify myself every yeah. day but how pretty is this guy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and I certainly try my very best to never compliment anyone on their appearance yeah um and because there's so much else to compliment people mm. for right mm-hmm. you're amazing and interesting um but, but it's, you know, sometimes I still hear it having slipped out. Yeah, um, yeah. It's so yeah. – I know a few people who – I mean, they're working very hard on their health yeah. and you can see it in them physically. Yeah. But I'm so – yeah, it's – I'm like, oh, I just I – I don't – I want to encourage them because I know yeah. it's important to them, but yeah. I don't want to make it what's important, if yeah. that makes sense. Absolutely. And again, I guess it's that tension. Yeah, and I think – Absolutely, that we need to support people and, and not put our values and yeah. beliefs onto them. Yeah. The, the word health is so funny, though. It's used to justify a bunch of behaviours. When you yeah. think about a healthy bank account means it's got loads of money in it. Mm-hmm. A healthy sex life means you're having loads of sex. But for some, a healthy food means an absence of anything. Yeah. And a healthy body means shrink it. Yeah. And so it's yeah. not – health in any other capacity tends to mean abundance. Yeah. But yep. somehow when it comes to food and a woman, it's then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think – the diet industry and the fitness industry really misuse that word. Yeah. And I'm seeing it a lot more as well. Yeah. They're going, okay, well, we're not calling these diets anymore. Yes. Um, we're, you know, you're having a lifestyle overhaul. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know, there's still, I mean, there's room for it, oh. but it's not, yeah. Absolutely. Well, we do need an abundance of colours and, yes. you know, nutrients and energy. Yeah. And yeah. it is great for our body to be fit enough to do the things we want to do. Yeah. Well, all of those things are positive. I just wait loss need to be discussed. Yeah. What is the shape or size of someone's body need Absolutely. to be a part of I that. think we need an abundance of sizes and shapes and forms yeah. as well. There's... Look at all the different parts in this room. <laughs> you know, none of them look the same. They're no. not meant to. And they're beautiful. And they're beautiful. They are. This idea that all bodies should be the same yeah. is absurd. It's very damaging, isn't yeah. it? I'm very aware of it with the kids. Mm. Um, I bet. How do you navigate that? Oh, it's actually it's been quite hard. Uh, my daughter is very tall and slim, yeah. and that's not because of anything that anyone has done. That's yeah. just what she is. But yeah. already some family members compare her to other family members. <laughs> She's five. Yeah. So, you know, and it's not that it, no one's intending harm. No, and yeah. hoping that those small messages are, are not going 
you know, I've got other messages that will drown yeah. out the small messages. Yeah. Um, and But it's very interesting to see how, again, how pervasive that is and how normalised it is that you would comment on a five-year-old's body. Yeah, yeah. And it's all love. Oh, of course. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, not a, a criticism at all. Yeah. But um, then, you know, and then you talk about clothing shapes. Yeah. You know, I can buy my son some lovely shorts that are loose and comfy and my daughter it's like oh okay so do you want the short shorts today or, <laughs> yeah you know, the super tight leggings yeah, yeah absolutely and even when you know we're talking about gender equity I mean my daughter's clothing is beautiful it's fabulous it's yeah. gregarious and my son it's like you know gray or blue sometimes yeah. we can throw some red in you know yeah. and it's yeah it, it's it's actually just really scary how quickly all of that stuff comes through and even as someone who's aware of it yeah how much I'm complying with it yeah um we live on a farm but my daughter never had any toy tractors you know interesting and now we've got a lot (laughs) so yeah yeah I'm super aware of it but I'm not sure how well I'm smashing down those barriers it's I mean it's a it's a constant work in progress Mm. isn't it and we our brains are shaped by the experiences we have Mm. and and most of us didn't grow up most of sort of our generation didn't grow up with but had all of this kind of awareness and rhetoric that we now do yeah and so we do sometimes find ourselves automatically at the checkout of the toy (laughs) store yeah with you can have the dinosaur yeah. and you can have the fairy. Yeah. And and even that the girl's Lego, like in some ways I love that there's a range of colours, but now there's Lego that's pink and aqua. Yeah. I love those colours, but why can't the girls play with the same Lego? Yeah. And why can't the boys have the fun and, ones as yeah, well? Exactly. Yeah. I actually, and I, that's what I'm seeing at the moment, is that my little boy wants the colourful stuff. Yeah. And um, that's not what he's getting. So, yeah. you know. Uh, he got to choose his drink bottle the other day and it's, yeah. you know, butterflies and flowers. Aww. And I'm like, oh, is that the one you want? Yeah. Like, but it's so funny because everyone's like, oh, no, that's Kenzie's. Like, <laughs> no, no that's really Happy's drink bottle. And, you know, I get a, a little thrill out of that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how much the drink bottle's going to change in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're in uh, very rainy South Melbourne today. Have you enjoyed the inner city experience? Is this like completely your vibe? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, when I lived here in my early 20s, I lived in Albert Park. Okay. So this very much feels like my corner yeah. of Melbourne and of the world and, and a place I feel incredibly at home. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah. And speaking of homes, you've recently uh, taken a plunge. Yes. <laughs> Will this be your first home purchase? Not. It's my first home purchase in Australia. Yeah, I did okay. own a house previously in New Zealand, yep. um, which was sold a long time ago. But, yes, my first in Australia. Right. Are there any um, – there's no issues with you purchasing land or anything? No. Like there's no hoops for you to jump through? It's, just, no, it's all just – very reciprocal. Okay. We are, as Kiwis, now allowed to apply for citizenship, which we weren't until a couple of years ago. We oh, sort of okay. Had, while it was easier for us to live here, it was harder for us to become citizens. Right. Um, so I probably will go through that process. Australia's very much home. Yeah, um, okay. But, yeah, no. Do you think your parents will have an issue with that at all? Um, it's a good question. I mean, they do. Yeah. And they're, they're really good at saying... We want you to be happy and we can see you can have a better life there. Yeah. My poor dad 
we left when we left Adelaide was often an amazing opportunity some, somewhere else in Australia I'm 100% clear of the details and decided that he really wanted his kids to grow up as Kiwis okay and so we moved back and now both me and my brother permanently <laughs> live in Australia <laughs> so poor old dad he's made all these sacrifices yeah, for you yeah and his career probably would have been more celebrated and exciting here but right and he made that decision that he thought was best at the time and yeah here we are <laughs> uh, yeah I just um I guess maybe they can always say to themselves uh, Deb's Deb's living in Australia but yeah you know that it's not a permanent thing but if you yeah. become a citizen it's it's very contractual. <laughs> it, it is. Mum um, actually chases me for it because she's worried that I, I don't know, Peter Dutton's going to become ruler of the world and kick me out or something. Yeah. Am I allowed to be political? Oh, you can be. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I, he, he scares me. Yeah. I've, the thought processes behind that particular particular brand of polity, it, I try very hard to see where that's coming from and I can't yeah i really can't the humanity just really disturbs it's me horrendous yeah horrendous actually one of the books on my bookshelf is the book that the writer who wrote his book texting from i think from money's island oh uh, bruce yeah yes yeah i've got that book sitting there waiting yeah. to read i haven't yeah. got to it yet no um, friend but the mountain i think it is yeah is yeah I, that's on my to read list. Yeah. I can pass it your way. Once oh, done if you fabulous. Like. Yes, you please. Definitely pass books around. Thank you. I will. Yeah. I'll take that one up. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, yeah. I think the, the plight of people seeking asylum refugee status uh, has been politicised to a point that has removed the humanity from Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, and it's an interesting one. I was talking to someone about this the other day that because I don't feel hugely educated I'm actually quite new to having political opinions yeah. or even an awareness because yeah. that's not really what was discussed around the dinner table as I was growing yeah. up and, but my husband's family are quite um have always spoken about politics okay. a bit more yeah. um so my awareness has grown and then I've started to do a lot of my own seeking out of information yeah. um because it's not like a formal education around it I feel really reluctant to 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 argue with people over it yeah. or but I the more I see and the more I learn and the more I read the more angry and sad sad yeah. yeah yeah and you know and even you know when Labour lost the last election yeah. I, I mean I didn't particularly want Labour to win I just didn't want the list to get <laughs> Absolutely. in um, because I just I don't understand no it's Really horrific, isn't it? And I'm not allowed to vote here. Yet. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, so I, I'm similar to you in that I I do often hear myself say, "Look, I'm not sure I'm educated enough mm. to have a st- strong voice in this conversation." Yeah, yeah. So I've got certainly got my strong views and the yeah. bits I've dipped into, and the bits that are really hard to ignore, like refugees. Absolutely. Refugees are being treated. Yeah. Um, have strong views on but I would like to be more informed mm-hmm. it's, it's on my to-do list <laughs> <laughs> well, one day yeah yeah so as a Kiwi and having Jacinda Ardern oh, as a she's so good as a role model yeah she's just I mean you don't want to glorify one person it's yeah. but but she's obviously leading a party who have all got some really humanity 
libertarian views. Yeah. You know, they're progressive. Absolutely. Um, and I'm actually, I'm not anti-conservative at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In what conservatism means yes. versus being um, regressive. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Hard edge, right wing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I like that they're moving with the times and creating that space and being proactive rather than reactionary. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Relatable and yeah, having open conversations, I think. And, of course, it's politics and I certainly know that not everybody in New Zealand is completely in love with her. Yeah. Um, but I, I did, when I went back recently, have dinner with some old family friends who have known me since the day I was born. Yeah. They are quite extensively involved in the Labour Party. And so they had photos of them with Jacinda. I'm so jealous. Can I sort of touch that arm that you put around her? She's yeah, she's certainly inspiring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So was there um, much of a political understanding in your household growing up? It's not something we talked about loads. Yeah. And, and again, I think probably because I was at boarding school for a bunch of my high school time, mm-hmm. I, I probably missed. Awareness. Some of that yeah. conversation around the, the dinner table. Yeah. Um, but no, my family weren't. They certainly they voted and they cared, but it, they weren't passionately yeah. political. Maybe that's the privilege that we've all had of having quite great societies Absolutely. to live in um, that we haven't had to really take a stand. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But until sort of the last few years it's felt like there'll be subtle changes and you have an opinion one way or another, but you, your world's not going to change yeah. hugely Yeah, no matter who gets in. Absolutely. And, I mean, I mean, to be honest, my world's not changing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I feel like those who are marginalised and yeah. um, have less choice yeah. are, are really going to see more and more pressure yeah it's an interesting one yeah do you think that when you were young that you could have what life looks like for you now is this like is this how you pictured being a grown-up I don't think so yeah I can remember walking home from school once and talking to my my childhood best friend Rach um and saying you know the year 2000, we're going to be 20. No <laughs> wonder what the world will be like then. Yeah. Um, but I sort of don't – maybe it's part of being a fairly in the moment but also impulsive person. I don't. I yeah. didn't have a great life plan. Yeah, okay. Um, I think I knew from when I lived in Melbourne in my early 20s that this is where I wanted to end up. Yeah. So, okay. so being back in Melbourne certainly feels like – right and mm-hmm. what I always wanted to do yeah certainly never saw myself as a business owner um yeah. is it is it just a lot of admin it is a lot of admin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a business admin yeah so I manage all of the referrals and so the day-to-day running mm. of the business um there's just a lot of clinical admin as well I yeah write notes for every person I see absolutely and then so, follow up and make sure that letters are written yeah. to GPs and all of those things so do feel like I'm doing sort of two full-time jobs yeah absolutely did you understand that that would be a large part of being a psychologist I don't think so yeah um and and in New Zealand I guess public services have much more space for outpatient psychology than they do here and so I don't think we were prepared for the way that we work here in Australia where it is you know 
iPad and you're seeing yeah. more clients a day yeah. and yeah, like, yeah. like seven hours of face to face time plus yeah yeah um, other health professionals I know are, yeah it's all kind of the same thing yeah. it's like you know I got into it to to be with the people yeah. and all the follow up stuff's actually the real that that's the hard part of the job yeah absolutely. <laughs> That part of growing up where you're like, oh, God, yeah, so much paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> this is adulting. I want to go back. <laughs> How many forms did my mum fill out just so I could go to school? Yeah. The other thing I find really interesting about you yeah. is uh, that you're a diehard Tiger supporter. <laughs> and yeah. I find it so funny that you kind of like adopted a, a city yeah. and then completely gone hell for leather for a sporting team. Yeah. And uh, you're probably one of the <laughs> strongest <laughs> I know. Uh, and obviously you're very into your sports. Yeah, um, yeah. But has that really sealed for you, that that move, that belonging? And I think it's been a big part of it, yeah. that sort of Melbourne feeling like home. Mm-hmm. And I actually wasn't a massive sports follower in NZ. Rugby kind of bores me. Okay. I might never be allowed back in the country. <laughs> Um, you know, I'll definitely watch the All Blacks in a World Cup, but it's, yeah. it's not a game that I love. And I hate winter. So having the footy to look forward to in winter in Melbourne mm-hmm. was has been amazing. And I sort of fell upon Richmond a little bit by luck, a little bit by influence. Yeah. Um, and they were, they were absolutely the, the underdogs when I started supporting them. So, you know, they're very... <laughs> me um but giving you know, a voiceless a voice yeah exactly um <laughs> I've been very lucky yeah to see and uh, 2016 I spent the year from the sideline yelling get a psychologist <laughs> and, and they did and they started winning yeah okay <laughs> well you heard it here folks Deb's, uh, Deb's influence really helped their performance would you have I guess been involved as involved in sport back in New Zealand as you are here? I don't think so. Yeah. And I think, you know. You die had tennis fan. Absolutely. I couldn't get an appointment with her in January. <laughs> no, the tennis was on. <laughs> don't book anything else. <laughs> um, I love the environments as well. Yeah. Okay. I think loving the environments and enjoying the sports has yeah. led me to engage more with the sports. And so yeah. my love for the sports has grown. Yeah, okay. I think from that. So it's the sport and the spectacle. Yeah. And is there a you personally, are you like a sporty person or are you a I'm I mean I've always been fit. I yeah. did ballet from when I was four to when I was sixteen. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. And so and I was quite shy as a kid, you probably don't believe that no. now. <laughs> but so being um in team sports made me really nervous. I was always nervous I'd make a mistake and let my team members down. Yeah. So I think any natural ability I had, I sort of shied away from. Yeah, okay. Um, and ballet gave me still something. So I, yeah. I, I love I love running. I love just getting back to running after several years of injuries. Um, um, and I love sort of being fit and moving my body. Yeah. Um, swimming. How come the the ballet stopped at 14? At uh, 16. 16, um, sorry. Funny story, actually, and, and probably tif- a typical Deb story. The <laughs> ballet teacher, I remember, said, now we're going to change our second class for the week to a Friday night. Uh-huh. And is that okay with everybody? And everybody said yes, including me. I nodded, and she said, Deb, is that going to be okay with you? <laughs> and I said yes. 
Uh-huh. And I think I went twice more. And I was like, no, I've got a life. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think I also knew at that point I wanted to be a psychologist. Yeah. And okay. so it was a question of, well, if it's going to start requiring sacrifices, are the yeah. sacrifices I want to make? Yeah, that's a big thing, though, because it would have been a huge part of your identity and yeah, just your social circle and... Absolutely. Is that kind of a typical dropping off point? I, I mean, I would have imagined maybe a bit earlier. Yeah, I, th- I think earlier. So I think you know, our, our class had certainly shrunk and there was a core group that had been there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sad and I missed that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think probably a lot of people drop out at 12, 13. Yeah. Um, or continue through to okay. do it more seriously. Yeah, because it would get – more serious yeah absolutely and is it competitive then? Like it were? I was quite lucky in them with my ballet school was run by an amazing woman who didn't really set us up to compete with each other and okay. so there were obviously competitive elements but I'm not a competitive person okay you know, and a few times I got asked to take the lead role like sort of cried because I didn't want everyone to look at me <laughs> Um, so I, I probably may, maybe other people in the class would say there was competition for lead roles. Yeah, I I don't recall feeling that. Okay, yeah, it's nice. So it was a a good experience. I think maybe ballet is in the same category as boarding school in my yeah in my imagination. Yeah. It's like oh well, you know, yeah, everyone was catty and yeah, um, yeah. It's just so interesting actually talking to people who experienced yeah. it. Do you still dance now? Is it I would love something? to. I sort of certainly had nights at home when I'm thinking about how do I, you know, make my life more balanced where yep. I've looked at adult dance classes. Yeah. Because I work late yeah. here um, and because I have had sort of multiple injuries, um, which means I'm practising out of my physio's rooms because I got to know him so well <laughs> that he phoned me as he was handing in his notice. <laughs> Um, I haven't done it, but I'm yeah, like, okay. it is something I'd love to when yeah. time and space allows. So are your injuries, they are getting better? I or you... think so, yeah. but I'm sort of tapped wood. Um, it's part of it's just ageing. I've always been a super kind of active person yeah. and lived without, you know, I think I've had a car for 10 of my it's 22 adult years. Yeah. So I've done a lot of walking and I think my body's just saying, but you've got to accept your aging. Slow down. <laughs> Do you have a car at the moment? I don't. No. Um, it is, is just fascinates me. Yeah. And I've built my life so that that's yeah. totally doable. Yeah. Um, you know, I really I live in a 3K triangle. Um, so cool. So I, it is on my to-do list for this year. It's it's time. Yeah. Um, but it's been quite nice not yeah. needing it too. I spend all my life in the car. Yeah. So much of my life in the car. Yeah. And uh, I think that's probably my one regret is that, I mean, I love where we live now. Yeah. It's beautiful. But that we never moved into the city and yeah. did like that real kind of inner city, easy to get around, you don't need to drive type yeah. lifestyle. Um, and which, you know, had we done that, none of the other things would have eventuated. But yeah. Um, 
and maybe I glorify it a little bit, like even just driving down Clarendon Street. And I'm yeah. like, oh, look, everything's just so close. I mean, <laughs> you should get your brows done there. You your yoga studio yeah, there. Yeah. Like, yeah. We are sandwiched between amazing cafes and restaurants and bottle shops here. So yes. So I'm it's glad a, you mentioned the bottle shops. It's, it's pretty good life. But, you know, there's, there's good and difficult bits about every life. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I said something the other day. Or get a shit shovel and exactly. <laughs> yours just isn't in the in the walking department. Yeah. So where do you do you have a concept of where you would see yourself in five years time? Um, not I mean not a super clearly defined yep. one. Um, we'd love to buy a property for this business. Okay. Um, at some point. Yep. We're on a five year lease here, so. In an ideal world, we might be ready to do that by then. Yeah. It might not be realistic. have to do it around here as well. Oh, so. absolutely. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's not. It's, yeah. Um, it's an ambitious goal. Yeah. Yeah. I probably haven't locked it down a whole lot more than that. Okay. We're working a bit less. Um, I yep. think yeah, working, working in the business a bit less and on the balance, more, yeah. more balanced life. Yeah, okay. Time to actually, I'd love to get one of the yoga retreats. Yes. Um, every single one so far has been scheduled after I've booked in something else, yeah. I've got a PD um, on Saturday for this one coming oh, up. Okay. Um, so to have time for those sorts yeah. of things and yeah. to be more available for my team. And mm-hmm. I've never been very good at plans in general. I mean, I work like a week in advance and yeah. that's about it. Um, but, yeah, I, that question came about because we did a, a meditation at a retreat. Yeah, okay. and. My five-year kind of what I visualised like as me five years from now, yeah. was, it wasn't a like a thing I was doing or it was just a feeling I had and I was yeah relaxed and content yes. and I was welcoming someone in and yeah. so I really held on to those that ideas, feeling that feeling right, rather yeah. than because I always get caught up. I'm terrible at making goals. I hate yeah, goals. Same. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. just interesting to see what people yeah think and we're you know successful like you you are successful yeah um, yeah but that that doesn't always mean you had to like map out every single step of the way yeah no i i mean i opened this within six weeks deciding i was going to yes. I, bought, I bought my house very impulsively <laughs> like within a week of starting to look <laughs> so I, I guess i've got an innate knowledge that i'll make things work yeah yeah um but, yeah, plans. Who's got time for that? Does that mean, like, are you good at pivoting? Are you good at, say, you open the business and it didn't quite yeah. work out? Yeah. Do you kind of go, oh, that's not working, and then do, do you turn quickly? Good question. Yes and no. Yeah. I'm, I'm good at restarting. I'm okay. not great at letting go. Okay. Um. So I think I would have found it really hard had this not gone well. Yeah. Yep. To accept a sense of failure. Um, and say no yeah I just, I just need to walk away but once something is done then I am really good at going okay well what's yep. next and yep. how do I redirect myself okay that is very nice point to stop at um thank you again for taking the time out and I hope it was a fun conversation Absolutely. a bit rambly I think your client's very lucky to have you mm-hmm. thank you so, and I hope the next five years is fab- fabulous. Absolutely. And that we can be sitting somewhere contently in five years' time Absolutely. reflecting on this conversation. Welcoming people in. Absolutely. Maybe listening to Missy Higgins. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been fun. No worries. Mm-hmm.
snuggle across the couch from her and let her walk you through all of the solutions to life. Most of our catch-ups have incorporated a Missy Higgins concert and so my thoughts and memories of Deb and my favourite songs are all blended up in a lovely ball of well-being and singing our guts out to Scar. I just love the story about how Deb and my sister met. How amazing that as an adult we can go out and meet and choose the people we want and need in our lives. How fulfilling! And I've been so lucky to have some great friends from high school who I get to catch up with and I love them dearly. But I'm also getting to meet new people and it's so fun and rewarding. And I don't have all the same hang-ups that I did when I was younger that my school friends have had to watch me peel back while I reveal my true self. I just get to show up as me and find the people who click. The quote that Deb said, the one I tried to correct her on, about being the person you wish you'd had when you were young. Oh, that one stuck with me because that's kind of why I've started this whole thing. These conversations are about sharing our stories so we can see how okay it is for us to just be ourselves. Because we've all got the weird hang-ups, the idiosyncrasies, and the desire to be seen and heard and accepted just as we are by the people around us, but also, most importantly, by ourselves. And Deb being a professional in the mental health sphere about body image, she kind of is the person I needed when I was growing up. I am working really hard to unlearn a lifetime of low self-esteem because of the way I looked. I was first aware of being fat when I was in primary school. An adult in my life used to call me elephant girl. Now let me start off by saying there was never anything wrong with me. I was always a normal kid, but what a foundation to begin growing a body on. When I hit high school, I became super aware of my weight. I think some of my helpful male classmates pointed it out to me. But I can't even tell you how that played out. I can't remember specifics, just the feeling of severe shame about my body. Let me tell you again, I was perfection. Nothing needed changing. I insisted on only wearing the school winter skirt instead of wearing the pants because I was so worried that people would be able to see my bum wobble in the pants. So from year seven onwards, during winter, I was cold. Also, knee-high socks that actually stay up don't exist, so I was also relegated to having to pull my socks up every 10 steps or so, and don't think I was alone in this. I started my first proper diet when I was about 15 after I'd started working at a local bakery, and I really did start putting on weight then. I used to get a big box of all the food that was being thrown out at the end of the day and take it home. Except I finished work at 5.30. My house was a good hour and a half bus ride home. So I'd have some baked goods while listening to Blink-182 on my Discman and then I'd go home and have dinner. I knew this wasn't good. Eating fatty things was bad. So on the days when I was working, I'd buy myself a 60 cent roll at lunchtime and that would be all I ate for the day. So by the time I was ready to go home at the end of my shift, I'd be starving. I'd eat the eclair or the donut or the sausage roll and the cycle of loathing and shame would continue. Then mum took me to a doctor and the doctor showed me the prop, the fat prop, a gelatinous one kilo rancid yellow colored piece of rubber pretending to be the fat and told me I needed to lose a certain number of those to be healthy. I actually can't tell you the number and it doesn't matter. With that very graphic, ugly and gross example, I realized again just how disgusting the extra size of my body actually was. The doctor prescribed me a diet of vegetables and protein only. No sauces, no bread, pasta, rice or dairy. And mate, the weight started falling off me. 
I got compliments from friends, teachers, parents of friends and my family. It was lovely. And it turned into the only thing I had any energy or brain space for. I truly believe that along with the weight, I dissolved a giant chunk of what made me interesting. Because now, what I was in constant pursuit of was a feeling of self-worth according to somebody else's measurements. And that's not where a personality thrives. But I didn't really have any knowledge about nutrition or planning skills. And I was never actually very good at asking for the things I needed. So often for lunch, I would buy myself a bag of mushrooms. They had protein, didn't they? I'd buy some chicken pieces from KFC and peel off the coating. My friends would eagerly help me out with those bits and I'd hate them a little bit for being so skinny and still getting to eat the yummy bits. I didn't do very well at school. When I think about my time at school, I remember being cold, fatigued, constantly anxious and hungry. As an adult now, I can recognise that there was no way I'd be able to concentrate or learn in those conditions. But I guess at the time, it was just another thing that chipped away at my esteem. I'd leave school with good intentions about writing that essay or completing a chapter in a workbook, only to have completely forgotten those deadlines even existed by the time I was in my room ready to study. Tell me, what could I have achieved if my brain wasn't 100% consumed with calculating what I was allowed to eat next, if I'd had two pieces of toast at breakfast instead of just one? Who could I have been in the world if my entire self-worth wasn't based on what I should be instead of what I already was? Fuck, that makes me sad and angry. And that was just high school. I've tried different diets almost constantly from then on, convinced each time that I was onto the exact right one this time and that the previous ones hadn't worked because I had terrible willpower or because I hadn't taken out the right food group. The greatest freedom I've ever had was after I did hypnotherapy for weight loss. Do you know that feeling lasted for at least a year? I couldn't tell you if I lost weight or not in that time because the hypnotherapy didn't stop me from getting hungry or enjoying chocolate. It relieved me from caring about my weight because for the first time ever, I didn't know what it was. For the first time ever, the space I took up in the world had nothing to do with the value of my contribution or my happiness. Unfortunately, that feeling has worn off and I've actually become very aware lately of the fact that every time I try to control my eating, it actually gets worse. It's such a cliche. The deprivation triggers binging and my old habits sneak back in. So in the course of writing this outro, I've convinced myself that it's time to go back to a professional and get some help deprogramming a lifetime of bullshit. Thanks for the therapy session, guys. We've hit on some big topics here. I'd just like to point out that sometimes I can actually be really fun and funny and I'm not all earnestness, lectures and childhood demons. So, Feminism. I've been learning so much over the past little while. Podcasts actually have really opened up my world. My understanding of my place in it and how the systems that surround us have such a huge impact on us as individuals and as a society. We all live within a context, right? But it's late and I feel like maybe I've given you enough to chew on here. See what I did there? But I just want to really quickly dip into this topic because it's important. But I'm going to have to talk about this more at some point because it's important. Feminism is not man-hating. It's not meant to be exclusionary. I understand some people can call themselves a feminist but can limit the experience of others through their actions and words. That is not how I define feminism. Feminism for me is about recognising that our current systems are constraining and limiting women. But they're also constraining and limiting men. 
and the patriarchy is not the only thing responsible here. There are intersections for all those who are marginalised. This is why I endeavour to be an intersectional feminist. As an able-bodied, straight, white woman with an education and financial security, I have a whole lot going for me. There are people out there who are also being impacted by discrimination due to their class, sexuality, gender identity, age, race, education, culture, immigration status and wealth. Intersectional feminism is the Venn diagram of where all of that meets up. I also want to acknowledge that no one is perfect. We're all learning. If I haven't experienced something personally, it's hard to understand where somebody else is coming from. This is why we need to listen to people who have experiences different to our own. I'm going to include a bunch of links in the show notes where you can get more information about these topics, about feminism and body image and health at every size and the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'll post some more about it on social media. And I'd love if you could tag Extraordinary Ordinary Pod if there are any articles or accounts where you get your information from. So that's it for this episode, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it. We went to all kinds of places. I hope I've given you something to think about. I'd love to hear from you if you have questions or feedback or can relate to any of the themes. Also, if you're so inclined, leaving a rating and review for the podcast on whichever platform you're using and also sharing it on social media as well, that would be very excellent. And liking my Facebook page, Extraordinary Ordinary, or Instagram, Extraordinary Ordinary Pod, will help me out no end. Have a lovely day. I hope it's extraordinary. Extraordinary.